Awesome. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, this is Atoms versus Bits, so we're going to be talking hardware, uh, things, all, everything from carbon capture fuels uh, to uh, nuclear fusion um, to the space industry to hypersonics, so lots of hardware-focused things, so uh, really excited about this. I'm Skylar Shuford, um, but we'll go through a quick round of inter intros so you know who, uh, who you're uh, listening to here, and then we'll you know, crack into all the things uh, where we're seeing trends moving maybe away from software, uh, or at least enabled by software, into more hardware domain, into deep tech, um, into hard tech, uh, and beyond. So uh, with that, I'll kick it off. We'll start on the other side here with, with Lauren. Uh, yes, it's working. Hi, y'all. I'm Lauren Lyons. I am the founder and CEO of a new company that's still in stealth, but focused on the intersection, hardware at the intersection of climate and aerospace. And prior to that, I was the chief operating officer of a rocket company in town called Firefly Aerospace. And before that, I was at SpaceX and Blue Origin. Casey? Hi, I'm, my name is Casey Hanma. Uh, I'm a recovering physicist. I uh, did my PhD at Caltech, uh, and then I went to Hyperloop for two and a half years at the JPL, working on space robots for four years, and then founded Terraform Industries, which is um, capturing CO2 from the air and turning it back into carbon-neutral methane fuel at cost-competitive prices. Good morning, everyone. I'm Darby Dunn. I'm the VP of Operations at Commonwealth Fusion Systems. We're a clean energy startup that spun out of MIT about five years ago, uh, hoping to be the last clean energy source the world ever needs with fusion. Uh, before CFS, I was at SpaceX for a decade, uh, knew Lauren very well, and uh, led the manufacturing engineering team for the Dragon spacecraft, uh, both the cargo and the crew vehicles. Awesome. And Skylar Shuford, um, one of the co-founders and chief operating officer of Hermius, where we're building uh, hypersonic aircraft to radically accelerate air travel, um, mostly focused in the near term in, in the national security sector. So really fast planes, um, New York to London 90 minutes is our uh, tagline for the vision vehicle when we start working on some of the commercial stuff. Um, but to kick it off, uh, really wanted to start talking, you know, um, why the things that we're working on may or may not be on the edge of insanity. Um, so why these types of things are, you know, ripe for disruption. And so uh, the first question I'll ask is for Lauren, you know, um, what sort of things in, in the space industry, given your background, um, do you feel are, are absolutely ripe for, for change and moving us towards that vision for 2050? Great question. Uh, so right now... Um, you know, with SpaceX, SpaceX's success that a lot of people know about, um, what SpaceX has been able to do in terms of driving down the cost of launch, you hear this a lot. Like, it used to be getting to space was so hard, so we don't really go very much. Um, but now that, you know, it's relatively cheap, um, you can get to space for, you know, a million bucks, um, people are doing it now. And so what that does is enable so many more like ideas that people were like, well, this is too expensive to even go into this business. I can't even try this. Now a college student can send a satellite to space. Um, there's so many new space startups that are being founded to address everything from you know, Earth observation, checking out wildfires, and you know, being able to predict when a, or see a wildfire super early and actually drive action on that. Before, that wasn't, a pos that wasn't possible. You can throw up an entire constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit uh, versus you know, a decade ago. That really wasn't a thing. Yes, there's the old adage, which is like, how do you make a million dollars in aerospace? And it's to start with a billion. Um, I think a lot of folks are, are realizing now that it's like there, there is money to be made and there's impact to be had, even though the timelines are long and the, and the costs are super high. 
Um, yeah, Casey, so um, yeah, go a little bit into you know, what you're working on and, and why is now the right time to start you know, bringing carbon capture into fuel generation uh, into the industry. Yeah, I mean, uh, approximately it's because climate's a really big problem. Um, and so it's, it's time to kind of get you know, the best people working on this uh, and work on it. But actually to, to off what Lauren just said, um, what we've seen in aerospace is kind of the emergence of business models that can function in the space space without needing uh, as much government support as they might have needed previously. Like aerospace has been around for a long time, but primarily it's been government business. Um, and so for us, uh, we're actually trying to, you know, basically pioneer a business model that can use the engine of capitalism, you know, uh, just regular old demand for fossil fuels uh, to instead, you know, substitute in a non-fossil form of completely substitutable uh, hydrocarbons. Why do you think now is the, the time to where we can actually uh, use the commercial sector to do this? You know, what has changed economically um, or within the markets that allow it to be a non-government uh, driven industry? Yeah, so there's two, two key aspects there. Generally speaking, um, uh, permissionless entrepreneurship has kind of um, you know, grown outwards from uh, primarily like Silicon Valley software based stuff. Um, into adjacent hardware fields, not all of them, and not necessarily completely um, with 100% success, but it's certainly um, something where ambitious people can look out and see that's possible. And then proximally to us in particular, uh, we were really inspired by cost curves in, in solar and wind, and no doubt in fusion, uh, but, um, but essentially when solar power in particular is cheap enough, it actually becomes cheaper to turn atmospheric CO2 into fuel than to burn fuel to make power. So you basically reverse the process. Um, so it's to, to kind of repair it that back, it's, it's really, it has to be complementary. Like none of this can exist in a vacuum. And so the fact that other technologies are coming along or what enables these types of things to, to exist in this, in this way. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> nice. Darby? Uh, yeah, I think to, uh, to kind of expand on that as well, um, fusion is ripe for disruption now. Uh, because there's a new type of superconducting material uh, called high-temperature superconductor. Uh, it's been used in a lab for roughly 20 years, uh, only a very, very small scales. And we said, all right, we actually want to learn uh, and produce a whole bunch of this and actually use this for fusion power plants. And that technology allows us to build uh, superconducting magnets that are twice as strong as anything that's ever been built before for fusion. Uh, and then I'll spare you the physics equations, but uh, you get two to the fourth power or 16 times more energy out uh, because those magnets are twice as strong. Uh, so that allows us to finally cross the threshold of net positive energy from fusion um, and allows us to build it in a much smaller device. Um, so if you uh, Google something called ITER, I-T-E-R, uh, that's a fusion device being built in southern France. Uh, it is massive. Uh, they started that project in the 90s. They're hoping to get net positive energy sometime in the 2030s. Uh, we started as a company in 2018, and we're going to get net positive energy hopefully by 2025. Uh, so that's really a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> shake that up. Yeah. And really that is driven by um, the approach. So it's, it's driven by the ability to produce these things at scale and to bring them together in a, in a way that isn't as large. Um, so I think there might be some similarities within uh, aerospace where, you know, new uh, developments, uh, at least within aerospace, are exponential on, on vehicle mass, the costs of those development programs. Is it the same within your sector? Yeah, very, very similar. And we're taking something that's generally only been done at a national lab or, you know, a nation state level. I think very similar to um, when I started at SpaceX back in 2008, that, you know, we came in as this, you know, small commercial uh, player in the game and said, you know, we are going to do something that only countries have done before. 
so it's similar in that way of, you know, we are taking, you know, I hope to be the first commercial company uh, to produce net power from fusion. That's awesome. Um, yeah, at Hermius, with what we're working on, um, so with, with hypersonic aircraft, uh, it's something that's been, you know, 20 years out for the last 50 or, or 60 years. Um, the kind of key enabler for us is to take existing technology, so things that have been flying for decades, you know, ramjets rather than scramjets, um, you know, regular jet engines at low speed, uh, and then nickel-based alloys and metallics rather than getting into exotic ceramics and, and things that haven't been produced at scale. Um, sticking in the realm of like, what are the technologies that are in production and capable right now that we can drive uh, into their extreme, like the, the, the full envelope of what these are. So our challenge is, is less so about any sort of fundamental research, but really about how do you bring these things together. And I see that sort of like as a common thread throughout any hardware-based uh, startup is like how do you bring the technologies together and align the business case and roadmap alongside. Um, any other things that you wanted to talk about in terms of uh, maybe the specifics around the technologies to, to allow some of the folks here who might be uh, wanting to nerd out a little bit in terms of like, you know, um, we'll, we'll start with you, Darby, on, on you know, what Commonwealth is doing and uh, what, what is sort of the, the specifics around the technology itself. Uh, sure. So there's two broad types of fusion. Uh, one is using a laser-based approach. Uh, so if you followed the news with the National Ignition Facility, uh, they were the first in the world, or first in the universe, uh, at least human-wise, uh, to get uh, net positive fusion energy. Uh, so that's one approach. Uh, that generally starts with taking a small bit of fuel, in this case hydrogen, uh, shooting it with a whole bunch of lasers, uh, and then using that energy to convert the hydrogen into helium, uh, and then that is how you get your, uh, you know, E equals MC squared gets you a whole bunch of energy out. Um, the other type of fusion um, uh, researcher um, production is with magnets, so that's the approach that uh, Commonwealth Fusion is taking. Uh, so that is taking these massive magnets and using those to force those hydrogen atoms to fuse together and get you your energy out. Uh, so that's the approach that we're taking. Uh, the type of device that we're building is called a tokamak, uh, so it's a Russian acronym for magnetic confinement device. Um, and uh, there's been about 150 of those built around the world um, over the last 50 years. Uh, but they all have not been able to get over this threshold of net positive energy, uh, mostly due to the magnetic field strength. Uh, so that's, that's what we've been working on. Um, our goal when, we, when the company was founded in 2018 was to build a you know, fusion-relevant scale magnet uh, that would actually get to that peak magnetic field of 20 Tesla. And to put that in perspective, a typical MRI machine uh, is anywhere from one and a half to three Tesla. So we're roughly you know, eight times stronger than uh, a very strong MRI machine. Um, so that allows us to actually force those hydrogen atoms to fuse together. Um, so we're currently working on our uh, demonstration device that we call Spark. Uh, so it's about 30 miles outside of Boston, uh, and the goal is to turn that on in 2025. And uh, we're aiming for, uh, so the ratio is what we call Q, so power out over power in. You need that to be greater than one. Uh, we're going for Q of 11. So uh, we're saying let's not let's not go to 1.1. Let's go to 11. Uh, so that will you know prove out a. <laughs> Is that the only reason you did? It's just like I'll oh, turn it up to 11. Like that's that was that was definitely uh, an influencing factor. <laughs> um, and then once we've proven out that technology, we'll build uh, an actual power plant. Uh, so that will be um, you know TBD place in the world. Uh, we're already um, having initial conversations on on where that will be. Um, and that will be actually producing 400 megawatts of power output uh, directly to customers on the grid. And our goal is to do that uh, by the early 2030s. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's great.
Cool. And so, you know, given that we will have all of this, you know, abundance of energy, um, and now that what is, you know, in terms of enabling the, the carbon capture, so it's like, what can you use that for, Casey, to, to really uh, make 2050, you know, green and, but still well-powered? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I just wanted to point out 20 terawatts, um, uh, sorry, 20 um, Tesla. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, 20 <laughs> Tesla. To give you an idea how strong that is, you can levitate a frog in 20 Tesla. Um, you, might, you might have seen a photo of that. That's the sort of magnetic field strength. I don't think that the Spark system is designed to levitate frogs primarily. Um, but I, don't, I don't think a frog would do very well uh, oh, it's inside completely their system. Fine. <laughs> it's, just like, it's got water in it, right? Like us, it's weakly paramagnetic and it's kind of can float there. Yeah, we did actually do some math and say, could we levitate a truck on top of this? The answer was yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The safety folks were like, please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so uh, for a hot minute at Hyperloop, I worked on magnetic levitation there. So I became quite... Uh, you know, good at figuring out how much magnets you need to pick things up. Um, so I'd say, like, as far as what we're doing, like, it's nowhere near as exciting, frankly, as, as uh, hypersonics or fusion in that the nuts and bolts of how we're executing is really about delivering extremely low-cost stuff, right? So it has to be, like, really generic and really simple um, and really manufacturable because we need to make millions and millions of these things in order to do this at, at the relevant scale. Uh, and, but the, the reason it's possible is that, you know, I have a whole bunch of different factors of production. I've got to pay for labor, I've got to pay for materials, I've got to pay for land, I've got to pay for energy, obviously, uh, almost like a, a simply staggering quantity of energy. 400 megawatts is a nice number in order to substitute all uh, 50 gigatons of CO2 that's emitted every year uh, by people around the world, uh, in addition to, you know, increasing access to cheap hydrocarbons for parts of the world that don't have that yet. Um, we would need it more like 400 terawatts, which is about a million times that. So uh, get cracking. Um, um, but of those, of those factors of production, only energy is, is currently getting cheaper. You know, labor and materials are getting more expensive gradually, but energy is actually is getting really cheap. And just to go back to solar for a second, like solar since 2010, which is when I immigrated to the United States, has come down by, by about a factor of 10 in cost, which is staggering. I mean, like, imagine if Starbucks was 10 times cheaper since 2010. Like, that's, <laughs> like, but, but solar is that much cheaper now. And so... What's driving that? Why is it so much cheaper? Uh, economies of scale, essentially. Um, so the manufacturing rate has also increased. The manufacturing rate increases about 30 or 40% per year uh, since 2010, actually, since 1970. Um, and, uh, and then for every doubling of production, the cost comes down by about 30%. So all in all, it, it works out to something like 10 or 12% cheaper per year, which is... Um, which is super enabling for a whole bunch of really exciting stuff, not just synthetic fuels, but like you know, new ways of mining and extracting stuff. Like I'm, I'm talking about abundance here, like post-scarcity uh, energy abundance. People have been talking about it for a long time. It could actually happen uh, pretty soon, which is super exciting. And so yeah, basically, this is, this is the one thing, if you remember one thing from this panel, this is the thing that will blow your mind. Um, how do we build a system that captures upside from power getting cheaper, right? So if we think power is gonna get cheaper, the way we capture the upside from that is we deliberately make our system energy inefficient. All right? Okay, keep going. Okay. <laughs> so generally speaking, with the sort of systems we're building, um, we're building an electrolyzer, we're building a carbon capture rig, we're building a what's called Sabatier or methanation reactor that combines CO2 and hydrogen to make uh, natural gas. Um, in all these three systems, there exist extremely high-performance uh, versions available, not necessarily in the open market, but you can go and hire an EPC company to make them for you. Um, and in all these cases, in you know, the last 50 years of academic research and so on, has been about 
uh, spending exponentially more money to gain at most linear increases in efficiency. And this has made a lot of sense. If you're paying 400 bucks a megawatt hour for power, then you're going to be losing money making hydrogen with bioelectrolysis as opposed to steam reformation anyway. Uh, so you may as well like pay up front a huge sum of money to get you know, 80 82% efficient electrolysis. But if you, instead you take that trade and you flip it around, and this actually comes back to a bit of what um, you said about uh, hypersonics, uh, in terms of using existing generic materials uh, or existing technology and basically taking it to its limit, uh, you get exponential cost savings for only linear decrease in efficiency. So it just so happens that our electrolyzer is, is spec for about 50% efficiency. So it's only you know 30%, well, it's like 80% minus 30% is 50%. Um, but because we do that, we can cut the cost by a factor of 20 or 30, right? So like we end up using about 30% more power and we end up spending 20 times less money building these. So for the same money, we can build 20 times as many. It's actually really similar to the innovations we've been doing with the superconducting material. Yeah. And you know, at a lab scale, um, you know, from a pure research perspective, the idea was how do you make that superconducting material the best that it can absolutely be? How do you make it super, super efficient, get the most current through you know, the most square inches that you can? Um, and instead we turned that on its head and said, actually we don't need the highest performing uh, superconductor, we need a lot of it. Uh -huh. uh, so the, uh, that was actually the trade: was can we can we change like flip the equation from focusing on best performance to instead mass or more volume? Um, and yeah, dramatically cut down the costs and really was that that key switch for um, our suppliers to actually produce the volume that we need. So in, in terms of so rather than optimizing for amps per square millimeter, which I don't know, it's like probably in the thousands at least, right? Um, you're optimizing for amps per dollar. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thread, and, and we'll talk more about like what you've seen in in the space industry and on the rocket side, especially. Um, but it's you know it's getting to scale. What ends up being the I think the biggest difference between atoms and bits, right, is there's an inherent scalability of software um, where it's a lot more difficult because the transition from R and D to production is so much different in hardware. Um, so I think that's a super interesting idea. I think is originally. Um, uh, one of my other co-founders um, came from Blue Origin. I think it was originally from Jeff Bezos, but like taking um, taking an architecture uh, that has high performance, but detuning in any of the individual subsystems, and that's what allows you to get like R and D very very fast. Um, and then you start bringing up and and bringing them alongside. But because you're detuning some of these systems, it gives you more margin to play in, given all these broad uncertainties of like the envelopes that you're playing in. So um, you know, getting towards um, you know the differences in approach, the similarities in approach between hardware and software. Lauren, what have you seen in the, the, the multiple space uh, or the rocket companies that you've worked for in terms of the approach to R&D um, that like manages this complexity and uncertainty, especially as we're talking about scale and how we get to scale? Yeah, I, one of the <clears throat> biggest things, I guess, you know, even though hardware, there are a lot of hardware startups, you know, and people are taking, you know, what used to be a way to lose a lot of money really fast and, and now going, hey, we're going to build rockets. The margins are still super tiny. And if you look at a company like SpaceX, if they only launched rockets, well, again, the margins are super tiny, so they've gotten into satellite internet. And that's a, it, that will bring in the money. Um, but I think in terms of like that production process, or that R&D to production process, um, what I've seen is you are constantly in a race against the clock. You know, you're like, if I only have this many millions of dollars and I have all these mouths to feed, 
and I have to build this thing. And so I think part of what drives some of the simplicity aspect, and by simplicity I mean like first principles thinking, like what does the system need to be? Yes, there's what NASA used to do, there's what the space shuttle used to do, um, but you know there was a different budget, a different time, and a different risk appetite. So if I say I have this many months of runway, I can either spend those entire, like a year, let's call it, I have a year of runway, I can spend an entire year getting it perfect. I can build the perfect machine, I can put analysts on it for that whole year, and we won't really build much, but we're gonna design something perfectly. How on, often do things On paper. Match? On paper, right? We can paper. paperwork engineer this thing, we're gonna have it in CAD, it's gonna be great, it's gonna be all these simulations, then you build the thing, and then you, oh, didn't do. We forgot something. Yes. <laughs> One of my least favorite phrases to hear from design engineers is, well, it worked in CAD. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's easy. Yeah, it always works in CAD. <laughs> right, and then you get the pieces and they don't fit together. So instead what you say is, you know what, we're not going to hit perfect. <laughs> instead, like, what, is, what do we need to de-risk right now? What do we need to learn right now? Let's build that now. Because I would rather, like, blow a bunch of stuff up by failing and get to that answer faster than design it in CAD perfect and then still have a maybe 50-50 chance of it working. Yeah, because that risk still exists. It's the unknown unknowns that are going to get you in this business. Right. Right? And so you have to drive as aggressively as possible. I think that is where there is a big similarity, which is like the fail forward, fail fast. I don't love fail fast because it implies like you're optimizing for failure, but it's more just like be robust to failure and drive it as aggressively as you possibly can. And I think that's something that is shared with software and that like agile approach is what is enabling a lot of these technologies to be able to come online. As long as your architecture and your business are both like resilient to the ability to like be dumb about something and, and, and learn from it. Well, and it also what drives like, it just to use SpaceX again as an example, like building a water tower out of stainless steel. Like, like that is cheap. I can do that tomorrow, right? Like I don't have to have some special material or you know do any science in order to do that. And so if you're going to the, these like economies and being able to, to to build this complex hardware in a startup environment necessitates taking a more fundamental approach to things. So yeah, I guess let's let's go a little bit deeper. Um, you know. In terms of like driving that simplicity, uh, Casey, how are you thinking about it for, for your business on how to drive simplicity into the, the designs to make sure that you are able to get to those unknowns, unknowns faster um, and being able to, to scale it uh, as, you, as you think about abundance of energy and being able to like provide uh, these fuels? Yeah, so the critical, critical thing for us in the design and kind of prototyping phase is, um, I, say, I call it closing the OODA loop really quickly, so the um, observe, orient, decide, and act. Uh, and so the way that translates is that you know, we very small teams working on each of these three subsystems in parallel, they're not blocking each other. Uh, they have the resources they need and they can iterate the design extremely quickly. They can you know, try out crazy ideas and, and you know, but there's, there's no assumption there that they'll go through analysis paralysis for six years, then build the thing and it'll work perfectly the first try. Um, it's mostly about you know, exploring design space and seeing how that works. Um, and then I guess the other thing is, you know, our intent long term is to do localize, um, essentially localization of production. So rather than having like one factory somewhere that produces all these things, we actually want to have like one factory per city. Um, and so generally speaking, a safer supply chain you can use anything you can find in Home Depot. Um, but uh, or McMaster, that's our go-to. <laughs> well, well, actually, so I mean, if you're setting up a factory in in like, you know, Nairobi, you don't have oh, a McMaster. Yeah. So, so like, if we can build this out of generic building materials, which for the most part we can. Um, not everything, but mostly, then that drastically simplifies our supply chain, right? And we, we're, we're in this for the long haul. We're in here to build hundreds of millions of these uh, machines long term, and, and we will you know, not be able to reach meaningful scale on a climate 
front. Um, if we run into some fundamental supply constraint, like turns out we need eight times more iridium than exists in the Earth's crust, you know that would be that would be bad. <laughs> Certainly. Um, how is Commonwealth and and how are you thinking about you know complexity management of an inherently, I, ex I assume, very complicated system? Great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean we have a, we actually have a, a document in the company we call the 10 things we know to be true. And one of the 10 things we know to be true uh, is that you know, making something that is simple, that is robust, um, that is reliable, like those are you know, absolutely key tenants. Uh, so I think that that hits a lot in our, in our thinking in our design reviews is um, how do you make something that is you know, this combination of simple and robust. And uh, I think maybe a good example um, is that you know, coming from the aerospace world, you had to try and make everything as absolutely lightweight as possible, right? It's like every every uh, pound. Mass is too high, always. Yes. Uh, is it low? No, it's always high every time. Yeah. Um, so that actually has been a, a really interesting mental shift for me. Of oh, the the weight doesn't matter, and so you're like, all right, let's make something simple and robust um, instead of doing you know some crazy design features to uh, you know do some um, you know isogrid pattern to get strength plus, you know, low weight, um, and sort of like, yeah, just do a giant block of steel. Uh, so I think that, that really helps that, you know, we have that benefit um, to, yeah, to help simplify the design. Um, and then uh, as well, like we, so we spun out of MIT, we actually still have a collaborative partnership uh, with the Plasma Science Infusion Center at MIT. Uh, and so it's also this combination of, you know, using a, you know, very research and, and analysis-based approach to try and figure out how to try to simplify those designs as well. Um, so we can, you know, be off to the races on an R&D project and say, all right, how do we, you know, this is the way that it's been done in the past. How do we figure out how to do that differently? Um, and actually one of the uh, magnet designs we came up with um, is dramatically simpler than, uh, you know, these type of superconducting magnets that have been built before. So to, to go a little bit deeper on that, um, I think there's, there's almost in terms of approach, an inherent rub between between research and, and building things. Um, so um, it tends to be where you're, you're trying to get into the kind of extreme environments and where you have to get almost like more complicated or like change your approach in a very uh, interesting way. So how have you been able to balance the like research focus, which I think has not inherently, but like has a tendency to lead towards analysis paralysis, to use uh, Casey's term, um, but balance that with like getting in the right neighborhood and then going to build the right thing. So what has, what has worked in terms of like marrying those two sort of approaches? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's actually, it's been generally a very symbiotic relationship um, at, at CFS, which has been, which has been great. Um, and we're, you know, we're able to allow the physicists time to think, time to ideate, time to run their models, you know, figure out better and better solutions. And then we are partnering that on the manufacturing side of, okay, once we have, once we have those ideas from the physicists, you know, they're like, all right, here, go do this. Uh, we have set up manufacturing processes that are able to iterate on that really quickly. So we're trying to buy them as much time to do that analysis, to do that ideation, to be really, really creative on these designs that have never been done before. And then we have shortened our manufacturing time you know, through a lot of um, you know, uh, in-house tooling, uh, you know, really rapid prototyping and trying to make that turnaround time really quick. And then also getting enough of those projects in the works so that way we can, you know, keep, uh, you know, we're not waiting to do everything in series. We're able to parallelize a lot of that. 
So like really focusing the expertise in only the places that it needs to be focused and, and really bringing everything else alongside to where you kind of parallelize it. That's, um, does that kind of match, as a recovering physicist, as you said, does that kind of match how you see Terraform uh, growing in terms of uh, balancing the, the building alongside the like some amount of research that is inherently going to have to go into it? Well, I'm actually very grateful that um, all the technology we're using has been understood for about 100 years. So it's um, I, I would have nightmares to be in, in Commonwealth's position, frankly, um, because like you're in the process of attempting to commercialize a, a thing where there are still like you know reasonably large error bars on some of the on some of the things. Um, for us, you know, the the error bars exist, but they're mostly around like you know just how cheap can we mass produce this thing, mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's where we'll. You know, succeed or not, maybe not. <laughs> Find out. <laughs> sure, Lauren. You mentioned uh, you know runway. Um, so what you know? How do you see appropriately managing uh, capital um, for these inherently expensive long lead um, endeavors that that each of us are taking? Build things fast. <laughs> Real things. Um, there's a lot of talk, I like to refer to it as a lot of LARPing out there, of people like, I'm a space company, I have a great logo, I have an awesome building, and I'm like, but where's the hardware? When have you gone to space? And so this idea of like one, demonstrating, showing rather than telling, it's a lot easier for you to show up at an investor's, you know, on an investor call with flight data mm -hmm. and sweet selfies like taken from space, way more important than look at our design history file, we got to CDR, isn't that cool? Great, but what are you doing? What are you building? And that fits so well into this whole thing, which I love, this, this sort of paradigm around simplicity and simplest soonest and getting de-risking things as fast as you can through validation. Um, I'm a big believer. I used to work in mission assurance and certification, and my job was to convince NASA that the stuff we did at SpaceX like met their requirements. And oftentimes, it didn't. And it wasn't because we were like bad at doing things. It was because you know what, actually, like maybe from a first principles perspective, the requirement doesn't make sense. And so often they don't. And so if you can build the thing so much, like I can't tell you how many things I was able to get out of by saying, you know what, you look at it on paper, definitely not what you asked for. But why don't you crawl inside? Mm -hmm. Go take a look. Actually put the astronauts in there. See how they feel about it. How are they engaging with it? How, wow, not only does this meet the intent of the requirement, this is a way better implementation than the letter of the law said to do. So um, for me, it's like, how do you remove the conversations, the chatter, the noise, and just get to the hardware? Yeah, it's really hard to argue when you can point to the thing and say, it's doing it. There it is, right? Exactly. Um, you certainly have to like spend the time on on the safety aspect. You certainly have to like make sure you thoroughly understand the failure modes. But like, um, but but to your point, you know, re requirements have an assumption baked in of how they got there. So something that we face um, is on the hypersonic side is um, a lot of the time the requirements assume a subsonic airplane um, and. You know, even when we talk about like life of aircraft, it's time under wing. Well, time is a terrible metric for talking about life of a hypersonic vehicle. It's really about cycles. How many times have you gone from a relatively cold airplane sitting on the runway to up to speed and then back down? And that drives the life of these systems in a way more direct way than like how long the engine's been running. Because once you're at steady state, then you're not really degrading the hardware in any way. So we have to like, there's a huge amount of education, um, not only with the regulators, but within um, the industry and the, the customer set, um, both on the government side as well as the commercial sector, on 
how to be thinking about these problems when you are fundamentally breaking a lot of the assumptions that have gone into all of this um, you know, bureaucracy and regulations along the way. Um, interested to hear how the, the same sort of thing I would expect to be on, on the educational front with the, the stakeholders who obviously want what you're building. Like the market is there. So it's how do you, you know, educate people around the approach being different? Yeah, I think for CFS, um, we have spent a lot of time explaining how fusion is different from fission. And uh, you know, I've been working quite a lot with both uh, local and state and federal uh, and even international regulators to um, how do you regulate fusion. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of precedent you know, for those 150 tokamaks around the world um, that I mentioned, but uh, yeah, it's never been done before at this scale. Um, so when we decided to build Spark, uh, which is uh, that device I mentioned we're building right now in Massachusetts, uh, we actually went to the Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission and said, hey, are you guys going to regulate us on this? Or, uh, or you know, who, who is the regulatory body? And they said, uh, nope, we actually don't need to, to regulate this. Uh, talk to the state. Um, so we talked to Massachusetts and um, you know, spent a lot of time on, on education of what are the differences, uh, that we you know, do not have any long-term nuclear waste, uh, that there is no risk of proliferation, there is no risk of thermal runaway, uh, going through all of these differences of why we are not fission. <laughs> um, I'm very pro-nuclear all around, though, just to be clear. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, what we're regulating on for Spark is that we're actually regulated the same as a particle accelerator. So we're actually closer to you know, more of a scientific device as opposed to um, a nuclear reactor. Um, so that, that has been really helpful. And uh, we're also part of a fusion industry association. So it's a whole bunch of uh, private companies, labs, et cetera, um, uh, that are working on regulations at both the national and the international level um, and getting, getting those regulations put in place. So by the time we start producing power plants um, and deploying those around the world, that those regulations will be in place. And, uh, ideally favorable for for fusion. Right. Yeah, I think that is something that, you know, it's when you're building a business that is, you know, hard tech and in these highly regulated but long lead hardware focused expensive industries, you you're aligning multiple things at the same time. You're not only aligning the the hardware development, which is hard by itself. You're also aligning the capital and the business plan alongside and then also the the regulations, right? And so it's like threading the needle of all of these convergences that have to happen at just the right time. And that's what it, at least for us is like ends up being the some of the most difficult challenges we have to solve because they are um, you know, they're not just complicated. Like the machines that we're building are complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, um, but they're pretty well quantified, and each part fits together in a, a pretty straightforward way. But it's inherently complex because these are all human systems, right? You have to convince humans to um, spend their time and effort on on working through these regulations, um, maybe even putting their own careers at risk because they're taking bets on some of these things. Um, and so I think that that's what ends up being the the most interesting challenge is like just aligning with all that uncertainty, all that like you know mathematical chaos associated with the human systems around uh, what we're doing. Um, yeah, and you need to get those, those systems put in place like well ahead of, or you know, in parallel with the technology development. Um, when I started at the company, uh, I was the third hire for CFS, uh, and the, you know, I had somebody start the same day as me who was actually the very beginning of our movement building team. And so the analogy that we use for the movement building team, uh, their job is to, you know, while uh, most of us are focusing on building the plane, uh, they're focusing on building the runway. So that by the time we're done, we actually have a place to take off. And uh, so I think, you know, that's, that's been really helpful of doing that a lot in parallel with the technology um, is, is creating this entire movement around fusion, I think both from a, um, a public affairs perspective, uh, but then also from that regulatory perspective and really laying the groundwork for uh, fusion as a whole industry. 
So I, I kind of want to take a little bit of a different direction now. Um, there was a lot of uh, story or conversations around approach, which I really love, but um, I also really love hardware failures. I think that really makes us who we are, uh, is you know, when you're building real things, you're inherently going to be breaking stuff. So I want to go around. We'll just, we'll just run down. Uh, we'll start with you, Lauren. What is your favorite hardware failure story, um, given your career? So I spent a good chunk of my career investigating hardware failures, and so like mostly deep sadness around them. Um, <laughs> but I, one I can I'll, I'll tell is uh, my I was like week three at at Firefly. At, I didn't work on that rocket. It was our first launch ever. I like did literally nothing. I show up and I'm in the control room, and you know I'm watching this launch. The thing actually clears the pad, and from my past experience, I'd worked at two other rocket companies before, I'm just like, first launch, just don't blow up the pad. Just get, in, just get off the ground. But then it was like ascending, and it like kept going. And I'm just like, well, is this thing working? <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, it wasn't entirely working. It was sort of not working. And uh, so the, uh, the range, the people who work at the, the, the launch base, they sent a destruct signal to, to bl blow the rocket up. It was off course. Totally normal thing that happens when a rocket's off course. Well, what ended up happening was the debris from that launch vehicle, we were able to collect it and in order to investigate the failure. We were able to actually walk out and find in a field the engines, the actual piece that failed in the flight. We were able to take the- That's very rare. It's super rare. <laughs> it didn't land in, the, usually things land in the ocean and you know, good luck. This one didn't land on the ocean. And like it was in per almost perfect condition. And like, yeah, there was some damage, but not from space because it hit the ground. And so we were able to find the exact place where the failure occurred, take it off of that piece of hardware, bring it back into the lab, run, you know, x-ray it, run all sorts of tests on it, materials tests, and get to the root cause of the failure. And so for me, it's like, yeah, that was a super tragic thing. But another great thing about that, aside from being able to actually diagnose the hardware physically, and I was running that investigation, Another great thing was we had a lot of rocket pieces, and so we were able to give the employees a piece of that vehicle, which you usually can't. And so this, the symbol that I wanted to, to give to the team was, like, congrats, guys. Like, seriously, we launched a rocket. That's amazing. We got some of it back. That's pretty cool. But don't ever do this again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you kind of have to, you have to walk the fine line of balancing the like celebration of the failure as a learning opportunity. Because um, if you make it too fearful for folks to do it, then it's like you're not pushing the boundaries. You're not trying you know, hard enough on, on these high risk, high reward things. Um, but obviously you don't want to be negligent and you want to do something dumb. Right, it's like congrats. I mean like literally like how many people on the planet have done this? Very, very few. Yeah. And on our first attempt, again, to not blow everything up and <laughs> to actually get off the pad, that's huge. Um, but yeah, and so to give that team that sense of accomplishment, because you're right, like you don't want people to think it's bad to fail, it's bad to make a mistake, but you go, what did we learn from this? All right, we got down to the root cause, let's not make that mistake again. Yeah, I think to, to add to that, um, maybe this is my favorite failure, but um, something that Lauren, you said, reminded me of, uh, for the Dragon CRS-4 failure, uh, the rocket blew up mid-flight. Um, the spacecraft uh, Dragon, which uh, was the vehicle that I spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears working on, uh, took a big belly flop into the ocean, and we're actually able to recover a lot of the solar panels. Um, and we actually made uh, little tokens, uh, put it in, in epoxy, and gave it out to every employee. And that sat on my desk for years as a very sobering reminder of 
how important it is to make sure you're doing things right. Um, so I think you know that that token that you you know gave to all the Firefly employees. It, it does, it, it drives you, like you learn from that failure and you learn, okay, let's never do that again. Um, you know, it's, let's you know, fail fast, but maybe fail, uh, hopefully not on a flight vehicle. Um, but yeah, I think you know, having that memento, like I still have it at my desk at home and yeah, it's a really like somber reminder of um, yeah, paying attention and doing your analysis. Um, yeah, I'm just echoing what we've already heard. Um, you know, the only truly catastrophic failure is one that you're not allowed to learn anything from. Um, and actually, I've got a funny story to tell here, which is uh, Terraform Industries, we're, we're a relatively young company. Uh, we started in April last year um, in our current facility, uh, and we hired this brilliant intern for the summer called Arun Johnson out of Berkeley, who'd already built, actually he built an electrostatic fuser uh, in high school. So like, kind of pretty legit. And, um, and his, his, it was his job to build and qualify a kind of test scale Sabatier reactor in about six weeks, which he did. Um, which, so just to kind of put this in perspective, this is something that, uh, it's a reaction that was discovered in the late 1890s, so quite a while ago, but he built this thing, and um, it takes in CO2 and hydrogen and makes natural gas uh, with a bit of hydrogen and water vapor and stuff left over. So we're like, that's super cool, let's burn it, right, because it's flammable. And, uh, and so we set it up in a Bunsen burner in the fume hood and lit the flame, and it's this big, smoky, fat, yellow flame, and we're like, that's soot, like, you know, hydrogen flames are almost invisible, uh, particularly during the day. Um, but this was a this was a, uh, a methane uh, methane flame. We'd, we'd made it essentially on the first try. Uh, we felt pretty pretty smug and proud of ourselves. Um, anyway, we, we were kind of tweaking with uh, some of the reactor parameters, and the consequence of that was that the the mixture ratio between the hydrogen and the uh, methane uh, became more and more hydrogen rich. Um, the, the 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 flame was still quite uh, quite smoky and yellow, um, but one of the things that we had not fully processed is that what's called the um, kind of the adiabatic like free flame velocity of hydrogen is about 10 times higher than natural gas. Uh, and so what happened was that the, the flame inside the Bunsen burner actually kind of receded into the tube. And I, I, this is kind of like a Home Depot quality Bunsen burner uh, with, the, with the side made of aluminium. And so at, at some point, we're just kind of having a look at it and, uh, and then it just kind of melts. <laughs> and we're like, oh, this is not meant to happen. We should think about this because you know, we're in the process here of making um, many, many kilograms of, of, actually, when you measure hydrogen in kilograms, it doesn't sound very impressive, uh, many thousands of cubic feet of, of hydrogen every day. Um, if we're not wise about this, we're going to Hindenburg ourselves and feel really dumb. So uh, we, we kind of had a, a good conversation about that. We don't, we don't flare uh, the stuff off very often anymore. But um, it, was, it was kind of a both, you know, we like Arun succeeded with his reactor, and we all got to see it working. That was a huge win. And then at the same time, we also got the wake-up call we needed. That, like, now it was for real. Yeah, one that comes to mind is it also involves hydrogen. Uh, turns out, you know, hydrogen burns pretty hot. Um, we. Uh, we had just, so this was after we had raised seed funding, uh, we were building a subscale engine demonstrator, um, basically taking a, a small kind of crappy off-the-shelf jet engine uh, and pushing it up with our pre-cooler uh, up to high, you know, high, high temperature conditions that, that simulate, you know, high mock conditions. Um, and that's part of our kind of like secret sauce is pushing a jet engine up and then transitioning to a ramjet, uh, which is more efficient at high speeds. So uh, we were doing a subscale demonstration of this and we had just gotten this, um, uh, you know, metallic 3D printed 
part, uh, our augmenter, the place where the fuel gets injected and where the flame holders sit for the afterburner. So it's a shared afterburner ramjet combustor. Um, so we had just gotten this piece of hardware in, you know, and at the time it was like a $20,000 piece of hardware. Um, and for us, that was like, oh my God, like <laughs> we're betting the company on this. It's so beautiful. It's going to be great. So we put in, uh, we put in our igniter and, and for speed that we had, we had used a, a hydrogen torch igniter um, so that we didn't spend any time on the development of the ignition system um, just because hydrogen always burns. Um, so we, we put the, the hydrogen torch igniter into the system and we're like, all right, let's test it out. And we're like, okay, we'll walk our way up steadily uh, on testing all these systems. Uh, and so we, we, we turn it on and, you know, in retrospect, obviously very dumb, but, um, a, you know, a giant, you know, like almost foot long hydrogen torch inside this piece of hardware that's only maybe nine inches in diameter. Uh, we blew a hole <laughs> inside the combustion liner immediately. Um, and, and we look at it and we're like, oh, what are we going to do? Like, we can't buy another one of these things. What are we going to do? And um, Glenn Case, one of my co-founders, um, he was like, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, so we got some of the, it, it was an Inconel part. So we got some like Inconel sheet um, and like ran some, some quick runs on it. An interesting thing is if you, you know, shoot that uh, hydrogen flame at a flat piece, of, of uh, Inconel, it does not burn through it, but because it was slightly curved, it like focused all the heat in and we would burn through it and it looked exactly like it. So it was like, oh, that was an interesting piece of learning there, but drilled some holes in it and he uh, tack welded it inside and we ran our entire uh, engine test campaign with just a tack welded piece of Inconel sheet in there that we just had gotten on McMaster and just made it work. Um, and so all of the technical learnings came about from this like scrappy solution to a, to a hardware failure that, uh, that is like part of the culture that we always want to embed is like the, the scrappy approach to things and like figure it, just figure it out. And like, you're always going to hit these issues. Um, but that one, that one will live on in my mind. Yeah. I think what, you know, you're saying, Glenn was saying it's, this is okay. Right. I think that's something that's like super important to to realize and to to learn and to accept in in doing hardware type work is that it is okay to fail. Uh, it is okay to try and it something doesn't work and that is better, you know, you will learn something more through that approach than being too scared to try. Um, in you know one of the early days at CFS, uh, we were working on this new prototype for equipment and uh, you know two of my engineers were working on this and and you know they seemed really ner you know really nervous to take this next step and like, well, I, I think I want to try this, but I don't know if it's going to work, and this is super expensive, and we're going to scrap all this material if it doesn't work. And it's like, do you think it's going to work? And you're like, you know, what, what's your probability on there? Like, yeah, I feel pretty good about this. And I was like, great, then try it. And, Send it. And just like the look in their in their face was, wow, I can do that. And like, it is okay for me to put, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of hardware at risk. And I was like, yeah, because you're going to learn something from it. And you know what? It worked. And yeah. Yeah, you definitely have to make sure, you know, your CFO or your finance people have that in mind. <laughs> true. Very true. You have to create the systems that enable that to be possible. Um, but that's, yeah, that's right. Like, because, you know, because they tried this out, we ended up finding a new method for manufacturing that was twice as fast as the old way of, that we were doing it. So, yeah, the, the financial savings, even if you had wrecked that hardware, yeah. end up paying themselves back. That's really cool. Cool. I, um, I broke down our burn rate by, like, per person per day and so on so that people can have an intuitive understanding. Put this up on a big whiteboard right by the front door. Every morning they come in, they know that, like, if I just sit at my desk doing nothing all day long, like, my per, per head cost is 1500 bucks or something. Um, and so whenever they're trying to decide, like, oh, should I, like, you know, expedite this part or, or whatever, like, if they're on the critical path of the whole company, that's obviously, like, that's a very big, very big number. But even for themselves, it's just, like, a waste of their time to sit around uh, not, not doing anything uh, because they're waiting for a part to come in for three weeks. So... Um, it's, uh, it's really important to teach people the time value of money.
That is a, a number that our CFO, um, yeah, we worked out and share very readily with the entire company of if you are on critical path and you save X number of days, this mean, this saves the company this amount of money, mm -hmm. therefore the trade is worth it. So to, to kind of wrap up, you know, the, the title of this panel uh, is Atoms versus Bits, um, but I want to take it down the direction of like places where you see software really uh, enabling this technology. I think a lot of our focus has been maybe even back to like, you know, the early 1900s where it's like, you know, try things, break things, figure it out, move on. Um, but where does the, the modern world have to play in terms of like really accelerating things um, and really helping bridge, you know, or like helping to be complementary to the more, uh, you know, early 20th century approach? Lauren, do you want to start? Yeah. Um Less food delivery apps, more things that matter. <laughs> Just gonna say it. Amen to that. <laughs> there, I think people look at the stuff that, I mean, like, if you're gonna build a rocket, it's not just I need a structures engineer and someone who understands propellant and engines. There are supply chain folks, there are software engineers, there are material scientists. There, I mean, it just goes on. And, and that's why it's so expensive and it's so hard is because there's so many disciplines and so many people who need to come to the table in order to build these things. And in the past rockets, we were just like, well, if I have a structure and I got some high energy fluids, I put them together and like get energy, it, it goes up. But like, when you start to add the software piece to it, and when software, like when software engineering, in terms of like being smart about how we control these things, like when you, you see these rockets landing, two of them at the same time on a pad, that's not just like a bunch of structural engineers being like, yeah, we got this. Like, no, that's like a ton of precision. That's like, like man, those things could crash into a building and, and like destroy a place, but that's not what's happening because there are some of the most kick-ass, amazing software engineers I've ever seen are working on this. And you know, in the past, if you look at the space shuttle, the astronauts used to actually pilot that thing to like drive it into dock. They, they would still like steer it and stuff. And like now you put the astronauts in Dragon and they're like, where's the joystick? Like, there ain't no joystick, dude. Yeah. Just sit there and enjoy the ride. And so, um, and it's just going to get more and more autonomous when they landed on the moon. Same thing. Like, they're doing literal hazard avoidance. And, like, you know, I worked on the bid our, when I was at Blue Origin, our bid to land astronauts on the moon. And being in these conversations with NASA, and they're like, yeah, so, like, how, does the, how do the astronauts, you know, do the, the joystick thing? And you're like, well, why would they need to do that? <laughs> yeah. Safe with the exactly. AI. Exactly. Just sit back, chill. You know, and, yeah, there'll be an override because, first of all, the machine's going to respond way faster than any you know, human ever could imagine responding. However, they're unknown unknowns, and you know, if I'm on, a, you know, on the moon, I wanna have some control over my fate if the machine gets it wrong, but that's not the baseline. And so I am so excited to see the aerospace industry embracing autonomy, embracing cybersecurity, and that's gonna be a huge thing in the future. And so my call to action to anyone here who is a software engineer, developer or knows people who are, it's like stop building stupid stuff and come and build things to change the world. We need you. Um, yeah, I think you know, one of the reasons that we've seen such uh, explosive gains in software productivity is that we've built this like really impressive tooling stack from like assembly all the way up to like generic, you know, high level languages um, that enable, you know, dumbasses like me to write code that does extremely powerful things uh, in essentially my spare time. Um, 
And we don't have that for manufacturing, right? So like prior to about 1900, we only had like hand-making stuff. And then since then we got, you know, standardization of parts and mass production you know, developed mostly by Ford initially uh, in the automotive sector, but that's since grown into other areas. Um, and that certainly delivered great cost savings, but we're still at the point now where if you want to have a physical device that's a consumer item that is cheap enough, you need to go out and build a gigafactory somewhere. You need to spend a billion dollars build a factory to get the tooling together. That's not the case with software, right? If I want to tomorrow, I can go and pull a bunch of Python packages out and put them together and make something com completely new that'll probably work on third try. And, and the cost of failure is almost zero. And so the, the cost of experimentation is almost zero. The productivity and creativity enabled are enormous. We don't have that for, for hardware. We, we do need it though. I just want to be clear, like if we want to have a really cool future, um, energy, like solving energy scarcity is a big part of it. Um, but I mean, I've been known to write blogs about living on Mars. Um, it, we won't be able to do it if we don't have the ability to abstract uh, human labor away from like physical manufacturing of actual atoms and stuff. So people need to work on this. <laughs> um, it's a really hard problem. Uh, I don't think it's even fully conceptualized. Yeah, I agree. I think we need both. We need software, we need hardware. Um, and Similar to uh, you know, what Lauren's mentioning for rockets, the, the tokamak is you know, a very large, mostly steel you know, and concrete structure, uh, but it is also a living and breathing machine once you turn it on. And there's a whole bunch of instrumentation and controls on how do you monitor that, how do you find the right conditions. Um, you know, we will be getting more into machine learning with the device as well. So actually having it you know, learn from itself during, uh, during these runs and getting more and more efficient reactions out of that uh, that would not be possible if we didn't have those software components. Um, and then you know, in addition to software for the device, there's also you know, all the software for running the manufacturing facility as well. Um, so that's everything from you know, uh, the instructions, uh, work instructions, we needed software package to write that, uh, it controls all of our equipment, uh, you know, so it's like, yeah, we really need that software, and I will very much echo Lauren's plea of, yeah, please, uh, if you are a software person in the audience, please spend your brain power uh, for something good um, and put that towards, you know, something good for the planet uh, and uh, supporting hardware projects. Yeah, I think to it's similar and tangentially related to all those things where um, we talk a lot about at, at Hermius, we're not just building the airplanes, we're building the machine that makes the machine. Um, so a lot of that comes down to enabling people to make high-quality decisions because you can't centralize that. Um, and it, it, it is easy to like even have like a pull towards that where it's like, you know, uh, people get promoted. Um, they obviously, because they're very smart, and so it's like this tendency of like to consolidate uh, decision-making. So, But really, the, the way that you combat that is by driving contextualization to the rest of the team. And I think by having the right instrumentation, not only in the machine itself, but in the machine that makes the machine, then you can drive that context to the rest of the team and allow them to make decisions as close to the edge, as close to the hardware as possible. Um, so I think enabling that, and so it's like, it's, it's everything from uh, not only, you know, uh, machine uptime and all the details there to like your ERP system, like how finance is being run, like where you're at on runway and like, um, you know, especially with like the types of folks that we're all probably looking to hire, it's like, let's, they're, they're more than just at that technical skill that you're hiring for. So it's like enable people to really make those decisions. So it's really using the software stack to drive that contextualization. Um, and that, that's, it, it's really, really complicated to be able to do that because there are so many moving parts, but it's like it's something you have to like spend intentional investment on to, to really drive it. Um, so yeah, final thoughts here. Um, you know, we're on the 2050 track. Let's talk vision for 2050. Um, you know, where our companies are at, where they're going, and like, what does the world look like 
in, in 2050. Um, something that we like to talk about at Hermius is that um, we, we went back and looked at uh, when we increase uh, speed of, of transportation between major city pairs, you know, what does that do for the economy? Um, so for us, we looked at, you know, Roman roads. We looked at um, high-speed rail in China um, and extrapolated. And, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that go into this extrapolation. But, you know, when you can connect major city pairs at, you know, roughly five times faster of air travel, um, what does that do for the world? Um, and so from our analysis, it, it's something like $4 trillion per year of GDP growth. Um, and that's 2% of the global GDP. So this is something that's significantly high impact to the world is just by reducing the friction of ideas, of goods, um, of connectivity between these cities that I think is really, really exciting. And then you can use those resources to fund other investments and it just compounds further. And none of that could happen though except for like with the work that y'all are doing. So um, yeah, I'll turn it over to Darby. Uh, so for Commonwealth, our goal is that by 2050, we'll have 10,000 fusion power plants running around the world. Uh, that is in you know, every, uh, every country in the world, uh, you know, focusing on a really equitable distribution of energy. Uh, you know, with that as well, um, you know, the world's energy demand is actually going to double in the next 30 years. So when we talk you know, globally about getting to net zero by 2050, it's not just meeting the demand of reducing carbon emissions in today's world. It's also thinking about how that will double in the next 30 years. So uh, the goal with 10,000 power plants, that's roughly 20% of the entire world's energy supply. Uh, so that is a very ambitious goal for us to get to in the next uh, 30 years. Um, and it's actually something I'm super excited about from the manufacturing perspective is how do you build the factories to build those power plants and deploy those around the world? Um, and yeah, that's, that's the goal. Yeah, um, 2050 is 27 years away. Uh, by then, uh, we will have capped every last oil and gas well, closed every coal mine, uh, and people will be enjoying gasoline for $1 a gallon, um, not including inflation, obviously. Um, so I just want to be clear here. like This is not something where you have to... You can if you want. You don't have to become a vegan or something in order to buy this future. Like This is, this is, um, this is a future where, where we have unconditional energy abundance for everyone, uh, not just Westerners, um, and... Uh, the gas is cheaper and it's higher quality and it's also carbon neutral. Um, it just solves that problem. Um, and we'll end up spending most of it uh, because electrification of transport, I'll end up spending most of it on high-speed planes, I think, um, and plastics. Uh, all of these things will be true. <laughs> Definitely. Plus, um, in my version of 2050, you've got a human presence. Um, I, I could see a, a space station, a commercially owned and operated space station around the moon, around Earth, around Mars. But none of that makes sense if we have war and famine and a terrible planet here. Because you will not get the funding, you will not get the public support if we're leaving people behind. And if we're gonna make a future like that where we are a multi-planetary species, we, got, we can't screw it up. And so this, I think what that means for back here on Earth is there's abundant energy, there's water, there's clean air, and the poor and marginalized people on the planet aren't being left behind and told to just deal with it. Because when that happens, you have war. And so we're not gonna be circling around Mars if everyone is spending all their money and energy nuking each other. Thank you very much.